You're listening to The Swedish Podcast, hosted by Jill Leckie and Kat Trigarski in conversations about the paradox of life between two cultures. I'm delighted to welcome today uh, Her Majesty's Ambassador from the from the UK to Sweden, uh, Judith Goff. Hello. Good morning. Round Hello. Thank you very much. I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> Thank you so much, Judith, for joining us. It's a real pleasure and a treat to have you on the podcast. Um, um, just also um, to to get to know you um, as our ambassador to to Sweden. Um, Usually when we start these conversations with guests, we always ask them to do a little bit of an origin story as to um, how you got here, where you're here, how you, you know, um, it's quite obvious how you, how you arrived in Sweden, to be honest. Um, but just how, how did you, how did you get to um, working for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office? How did that happen? Well, um, when um, I left university, I had a degree in German and Russian, which equipped me to speak German and Russian and read lots of literature in German and Russian, but not much else. Um, <laughs> and I, no offense to the university I attended, it was a wonderful degree. But uh, when I graduated, I, I knew that I wanted um, to become a diplomat, but I, I didn't apply, I think for two reasons. One was I wasn't sure I would get in. I didn't think I was good enough. It's a tough uh, process and uh, I think quite daunting. Uh, well, certainly was back then. I think that's less so now. And then secondly, um, because I was gay and up until the early 90s the Foreign Office had had a complete prohibition on anybody gay working for the diplomatic service even though that had li been lifted by the time I graduated I didn't think that the organization would be mm. that welcoming so I went off to the city instead and worked for Ernst & Young for six years um, qualified as a management accountant um, had a, a great time um, but then really only plucked up the courage to apply to the Foreign Office in 2001 uh, and miraculously got in, uh, which came as a surprise to me, a pleasant one. Um, a number of jobs in London, uh, doing the usual apprenticeship that one does as a new uh, uh, diplomat, uh, first posting in South Korea uh, as a political counsellor, back to the UK, and then I have been uh, ambassador in Georgia, uh, up until very recently, ambassador in Ukraine, and then we drove from Ukraine to Sweden in the summer of 2019 uh, to start my posting here. That's a very quick summary, but gives you a yeah, it's perfect. Nonetheless, <laughs> it's short and sharp and sweet. Lovely. Um, th this is Cat, and I know that you've got some questions that you would ask as well. But I'm just going to jump straight into how did how how do you enter? Into, into diplomatic service. How does that work? Um, you basically apply. Um, okay. I seem to remember having uh, noticed an advert in one of the national newspapers. I came in on a slightly unusual intake, which was a middle, a middle management uh, intake rather than uh, the fast stream. Uh, or other streams that are available. And it's based on merit. You go through a series of stages. The first stage was an exam. I spent a day in Clapham Town Hall uh, behind a desk uh, taking uh, lots of tests, which are really 
to understand um, you know, your, your capacity. It's not on international relations. It's much more uh, uh, to test um, your, your ability to think on your feet uh, and to analyze. Uh, the next stage was a day in Islington. I got to tour London. Um, and that was a, a day of uh, role plays, interviews, essay writing. And then finally, um, probably the most intimidating of all, was a final interview at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as was then in Westminster, uh, four gentlemen behind a desk on a stage and me sat there uh, in the room uh, answering lots of questions uh, and, and then offered the job. Um, and once you clear security, uh, that's it, you're in. So um, it, it's open to anybody. I know there are a lot of um, rumors that you have to have attended a certain university, you have to know certain mm. people, you have to have at least two surnames. <laughs> that's really not very accurate anymore. Um, I'm state school educated. I did not go to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, I came in via that route, um, and as do, as you know, do most people now, uh, unless mm. they transfer in from other government departments. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Really, so it's not like James Bond. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. I mean, first of all, that's a slightly different organisation. Yeah, I know. Secondly, yeah. I, I don't remember the scene where James Bond is in Clapham Town Hall sitting uh, an aptitude test. But if I've missed that, if I've missed that film, let me know. Uh, trust me, people have asked that question. <laughs> uh, when uh, when you get a, a posting for the first time, is there um, sort of what level of support do you get, you and your family, for the posting? It's it, it varies on on where you go. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, one of one of the most important things is can you speak the language uh, of wherever you go? Uh, and the idea is that we as diplomats can. Um, I take it very personally that if I'm the ambassador in a country, I can speak the language of that country. I think it shows respect. Um, I think it enables you to do your job. If I can't read uh, the Swedish newspapers or listen to the television, uh, then I don't think I can track what's happening here accurately. So we do get a good amount of language training uh, that is open to spouses, certainly. Uh, children have to sort of learn as they go along. Um, so there is support there. And I think as an organization, because we have such a curious life where we move around the world every three or four years um, there's a lot of camaraderie uh, within the organization because people you know understand that it's yeah, it's quite a big ask to take your family with you somewhere mm, strange yeah. so you find that there are support networks in the organization for families for spouses we have this wonderful term of trailing spouse uh, we really need to have something better than that to describe our partners <laughs> yes, who are totally super agree. heroic super totally heroic agree. in following us um <laughs> But, but, but there is a level of support there, uh, and I think that's absolutely essential. I mean, often we're asking people to go to very dangerous environments as well. Um, mm. you know, Sweden is, of course, not. Um, so, you know, we understand the need to give people that support yeah. um, uh, and to make sure that um, they feel well looked after when they arrive at a post, when they're adjusting. But, I mean, we also expect people to be self-starters as well. Um, mm. you know, if, if you come into this type of work, you have to be curious about the world. You have to be interested in the world. And you have to be prepared to put up with a certain degree of hardship yeah. um, and adventure. Um, and that's part of the deal. Mm -hmm. Have you have you seen the role of ambassador change in the last decade? Do you think what's the 
when, as you're saying your tenure? I think the fundamentals say the same. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm here to represent British interests in Sweden, uh-huh. as all my predecessors over the past 500 years have done so. Um, I think one of the biggest changes is we have more women. Um, in over 500 years of diplomatic relations with Sweden, I am the first woman to hold this role, which is wow. remarkable. But, you know, I, I think that has been a huge change. When I was first ambassador in Georgia, I think we had three female ambassadors in the country at the time. Um, and, you know, not so many in the British system. Fast forward, we have a third of our heads of mission overseas, that's ambassadors, high commissioners, uh, consuls general, are, are now women and, and growing. We're not quite where the Swedes are, which is at 50%, um, but, but that is increasing. I think the other thing that has changed is what technology has done to the role. Mm. So previously, ambassadors were extraordinary and plenipotentiary in the broadest sense. They were sent out from the UK by ship. They took months to arrive wherever they were, and nobody knew what they were doing. Whereas, of course, now in the 21st century, it's pretty easy to know what one Jay Goff in Sweden is doing. Technology (laughs) enabled that. So it doesn't mean that we have powers in the same way that our predecessors had. Um, And I think technology has changed things whereby often ministers can WhatsApp each other whereas previously the communications would have gone through uh, the mission or, or the ambassador. That still happens to a certain extent, and it varies country by country. But that means you know, the, the role has moved slightly uh, in that sense. I think the other thing is ambassadors are now expected to have a social media presence. Mm. which is something that previously didn't really exist and to be active on social media getting our messages out there that means you become much more of a public person and I think that's it that's a huge shift mm. uh, it also means things happen much quicker in, in real time so for example at the moment where we have travel bans that have just been introduced um, for flights coming uh, from the UK you know we're getting out there and owning that um, and responding to people in real yeah. time in a way that probably wouldn't have happened uh, just mm. a decade ago. Uh, and mm. that's enabled. I mean, it's, it's absolutely right. We should be responding to people. Um, but that is something that technology has enabled uh, and has changed, I think, the pace of yeah. diplomatic life mm-hmm. as well. well. So would you say technology has benefited you or...? <laughs> made life a little bit harder there is a degree of attraction about being overseas and nobody knowing what you're doing (laughs) you know I I think it does enable the job because it enables us to reach people uh, explain Mm -hmm. what is going on explain what we're trying to do part of my job is also to sell the UK Uh, and you know particularly now as we live in COVID times Mm not being able to go out there we can use the technology so I, I think a lot of us have become ambassadors through a zoom screen um you know without that technology i think that would have curtailed an awful lot of diplomacy yeah but i think just to put it into context there was a, an anecdote that i was told when i arrived in in south korea um during the korean war uh, when the uh, north were pushing down to take pyongyang with the chinese i think it was at the time had already joined in the british embassy uh, did not know what to do so they went outside and sat on the lawn outside the british residence waiting for the telegraph or, or the telegram to come from london to give them instructions do they leave the embassy and flee <laughs> do they stay there the telegram never came <laughs> and they were all taken prisoner and shipped off to Pyongyang for the duration of the war and kept as prisoners. Now, the idea that in this day and age we would be sitting there waiting 
for instructions <laughs> to come by telegram or pigeon oh. or whatever it is, 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 is completely far-fetched. Yeah. But that's how, how much things have changed in the past mm. 60 or 70 years that, you know, embassies might have had a communication a week. Mm. I'm lucky mm -hmm. if I get one in an hour. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I think that has changed the pace, changed the role to a certain extent, but the, the fundamentals still say the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And in terms of that, sort of, how is the the day to day life of an ambassador? What uh, what does your typical day look like if there I mean, is such? A I, I think that's the thing. There there is no typical day. Um, I, I think this year the days have become more typical. Um, you know, if if you know, if we're really honest. Um, uh, there is a lot of uh, sameness to sitting behind a, a computer screen and, and talking to people. Um, mm. So, so it, it has become a little bit more limited. Um, but, you know, uh, no two days are the same. Uh, I think the things that anchor me are doing the school run in the morning. Um, that is, that is, you know, absolutely vital uh, to me and to make sure that um, you know, there's a degree of normality about my life and I'm spending time with my children. But other than that, it could be anything from ministerial meetings, um, having a British minister over from the UK, having a trade event, uh, traveling with the military, uh, mm. say to Gotland, as I did earlier in the year and jumping in and out of helicopters. Um, when I was in Ukraine, going forwards to um, uh, the conflict zone, for example. So it really is very varied. You're meeting a completely diverse range of people doing a diverse range of things. Some of it's quite tough when we're looking at consular issues, when we're helping British citizens who um, may have been involved, for example, in a terrorist attack or have lost mm. loved ones mm. or we need to get back home. You know, there, there's some tough stuff yeah. um, that, that, that staff have to go through. But I think no two days are the same. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that is one of the attractions of the job is the sheer variety. Uh, if you're somebody who likes to plan your life uh, and have everything tightly defined, then this is possibly not the job. <laughs> um, the number of times, I mean, I can remember one, it's a couple of years ago when I had flown back to the UK for Christmas and thought, that's it, 20 first of December I'm home for Christmas and then I discovered the next day I was actually flying on a plane back to Ukraine with the Secretary of State for Defense uh, with, 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 with a couple of days notice you, you have to be pre prepared um, to, to roll with the punches mm. a, a little bit uh, and to and to go with it um, mm. and, and that requires an understanding family yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. Um, I'm going to jump in here and, and just ask you mm. know being um, being an openly gay ambassador um, mm. to the Ukraine previously, it is kind of the very definite definition of uh, the cultural paradox that um, Kat and I talk a lot about on the podcast, that you find yourself in that sort of cognitive dissonance. Um, how did you navigate that sort of feeling, cultural differences, when you were representing the UK in Ukraine? I mean, I think, you know, the first the first point is that uh, because I think sometimes there is that challenge as to why should someone like you be representing the UK, mm. particularly in a difficult environment. Mm. And I think the answer to that is, look, A, if I'm qualified to do the job, I'm qualified to do the job. Um, and sexuality is irrelevant on that. But also that the UK is a diverse nation and yeah. therefore we need our representation to be overseas, uh, overseas to be reflective of that diversity. That's absolutely vital. That's about who we are. Yeah. 
Um, and I think my experience was, you know, not as difficult as one might imagine. Um, I think for a number of reasons. One is when you're an ambassador um, in a lot of countries, um, there is respect for that position. You are the representative of the head of state and you are the person who is responsible for making sure that bilateral relationship works. There's a lot of respect for the position, therefore, and people know they have to deal and engage with you. Mm. So I think in some ways that gives you a little bit of uh, protection from some of the challenges that other people uh, might experience. Mm. And then I think the other thing is, is about how you approach it. Um, where you go into an environment where you know that there is literally no discourse um, mm. about sexuality, where you know that anybody who is open about it is likely to suffer uh, serious abuse. Of course, you know that, you know, uh, LGBT uh, plus people will be present in the country and you yeah. know that some of them yeah. may be your interlocutors. So I think if you approach it in a way that is very matter of fact, yeah. um, that helps in terms of exposing people to something they may never have met before. Mm. So the number of times in Ukraine uh, and in Georgia, actually, people have said to me, I mean, it's usually one of two things. Either I've never met a gay person before, to which my answer was, I'm sh I can assure you, you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, you just may not have realized it. Um, or, or the second um, uh, sort of response was, well, you don't look like a lesbian, uh, which <laughs> had me vaguely scratching my head. But what that makes you realize is that what you are doing is exposing people knowingly to this for the very first time. And that brings with it a certain responsibility. Mm. Uh, and, and I think, you know, what then happens is the start of a debate and a conversation that might not otherwise have happened. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And, you know, the number of times that we well, are quite normal, really, aren't you? And, and again, this may not sound politically correct mm -hmm. in a UK or a Swedish context, mm -hmm. but don't underestimate how groundbreaking that is in other contexts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, and, and I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, we have to understand that you know, progress may be slow, but exposing people to the discussion, to the very physical fact of a person who is of a different sexuality to them is, is, is a really important step forwards. And I think for me, obviously, if you're posted to Ukraine, my priority is not um, LGBT plus rights. Uh, my priority in a country like Ukraine is to help support a country involved in conflict with its near neighbor. Yeah. To help absolutely. resolve a conflict that's killing, you know, has killed now, you know, over 14,000 people, is to help the country reform and move forwards, mm. uh, eradicate corruption. However, there is a strand to the work which is about human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, you can you know, uh, also work on that. But I think one of the things I've always been very clear about is it is, I think, much easier to be the ambassador that happens to be gay, because that mm -hmm. allows me to be effective, if that makes sense, across a broad range of objectives, than the gay ambassador. Yeah. Because if you are the gay or the lesbian ambassador, that will instantly narrow you in a lot of people's minds and may shut off opportunities for, you know, helping uh, do some of the important things that you need to do on conflict resolution or getting rid of corruption or, or supporting mm. a nation forwards. So it, it can be tough. There are moments that are tough, but actually um, not as difficult, I think, as people would imagine. Okay. Mm. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah, I can yeah. understand. I can understand having that kind of veil of protection between, you know, in the role that you have as well. But uh, yeah, it's still, still, it's still fascinating to 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 hear about, <laughs> actually. But I think one of the things for me is <clears throat> having worked in these countries and met uh, some of the LGBT plus groups who mm. obviously work uh, to promote rights. It's very humbling. I, you know, I do have the protection of position, um, yeah. and you know, a team around me uh, that look after me. Some of these people are the bravest people I have ever met. Um, yeah. Yeah. Going on a pride march in Kiev is a very. Mm. Int- it, it's not like you know the happy party that everybody attends in Stockholm, except <laughs> for me because I still haven't been. It, it was, was cancelled <laughs> this year. This year no. um, it is you know something done uh, by the community with allies uh, against a very heavy police presence and a very yeah. intimidating atmosphere um, and uh, under significant threat. So I think what it you know what I find is it you know, it's extremely humbling to meet people who are working on those issues mm. uh, in an environment that is so hostile and yet yeah. despite the threats and the challenges continue to to move forward and you, you can see you can see debate starting to come it will be slow but mm-hmm. then it took the uk time absolutely um, you know and, and and sweden you know has you know we, we've all had to move forwards on this and rightly yeah. so but it takes time yeah yeah you were saying that uh, one of the main aspects of, of your work when you're in Ukraine was uh, to do with the conflict there. But what would you say is one of the main aspects of uh, the British ambassador's role here in Sweden, in contrast? I mean, I think here, um, what what we're heavily focused on um, and what defines our relationship uh, are two countries that are very like-minded. Uh, we, we partner very closely together and, and you know, traditionally have done. Uh, obviously, uh, Brexit or EU exit, as we now call it in the UK, um, will change um, the context for that relationship. So my job is to make sure, and my heavy focus at the moment is to Mm. make sure that we come through that uh, with a relationship that remains strong, uh, that trade uh, and investment between our two countries continue to flourish and that we continue to work together. Um, And and that is absolutely key. Uh, I think the other part of this is Sweden, very strong defence partner for the UK and for Mm -hmm. NATO. So there's a lot of work on defence and security uh, that we uh, do with our Swedish colleagues. Um, And I think, you know, again, testament to how diverse this job can be. Uh, At the beginning of this year, I had no idea really what a coronavirus was. Uh, I certainly didn't think I was going to be spending any time on it. Um, (laughs) By the end of this year, you know, it is a major focus, um, yeah. both in terms of how we work with Sweden to protect our citizens against the virus. We've taken different approaches, how we understand and learn from each other's approaches, how we manage, for example, the latest uh, variant that has um, been discovered in the UK mm. and travel restrictions. So I, I would say a huge area of my job, an unexpected area of my job, but testament to the variety and the unpredictable predictability of this job is that you know I've had to become overnight um, a little bit more expert uh, in viruses as we all have uh, and that now forms a a major part of uh, my work and that of the British Embassy as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah I I think this is we have some questions from our listeners and we've covered actually quite a lot of them but the one that we haven't is um, so far is what is your favorite part of being an ambassador? 
I thought you were going to ask me my favourite colour then. I was like, <laughs> so that's what I know. <laughs> you can tell us if you like. <laughs> um, my favourite part of being an ambassador, um, I think it's the people that you get to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do this job because uh, I like to travel, because I'm curious about the world, because yeah, I, I, I want to be you know, I want to serve my country, you know, the, the, there is uh, a whole uh, sort of ethos of public service about this that appeals to me. But I think what really, really makes the job worthwhile for me is is who you meet. And and, and that can vary. I mean, I'll give you two examples. You know, it can be the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the famous talented people that you meet and you think, wow, uh, we had John le Carre, who sadly passed away uh, very, very recently mm. uh, here in Stockholm earlier this year. And I was able to host him for lunch uh, and spend time with him and his wife. And that was just a most extraordinary mm. privilege to be able yeah. to sit and talk to him and listen to his experiences of working in an embassy uh, yeah. in East Germany and to listen to his stories and wisdom and, and, and wow. Yeah. Um, and then I think at the, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, for example, traveling out to Eastern Ukraine and uh, meeting with the people who are there tackling the issues on the ground. The UK uh, was um, funding uh, one of the largest demining projects in eastern Ukraine. Unfortunately, one of the consequences of the conflict is Ukraine now has a very large amount of unexploded ordnance, pers- anti-personnel mines, tank mm. mines, extremely dangerous. Um, you you will have seen you know, in the past uh, efforts, um, particularly led by Princess Diana, to tackle landmines worldwide. And the project that we fund through the Halo Trust trains local teams to remove all of this explosive uh-huh. uh, remnants of warfare. Um, and I spent time uh, with the teams. These teams were mainly female, mm-hmm. my age and younger, wives, mothers, school teachers, painstakingly removing explosives uh, from the ground and from uh, you know, I remember going to, to one place uh, where it was actually in a, in, in a small wood um, and, and watching as they were, were lifting stuff out. And I think that is, you know, for me, extraordinarily humble to be able to sit and talk to women who are risking their life on a daily basis, having yeah. been trained in new skills to make their environment safe. And I think for me, um, you know, those are the most extraordinary things. It's the people you meet um, uh, and it's, it, it's always interesting. It's often humbling uh, and, you know, very rewarding mm. and an absolute privilege mm. as well. Yeah, I, I can. And especially when we're so privileged to live in a country like Sweden, which is so safe. And so, uh, you know, we, we don't have to worry about things like landmines or, and these, yeah, these stories are incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, we, as, as our, uh, representative of Her Majesty in Sweden, mm-hmm. um, would you like to offer a, a small Christmas message to our listeners for, uh, no uh, pressure? I mean, <laughs> I, know. I, I mean, you know, I, I think. Christmas this year is is not what any of us um, would necessarily have expected or anticipated, um, and I think all that I can do is to wish anybody, uh, you know, wherever they are and however they are celebrating, uh, a happy Christmas and and all the best for 2021. And my hope is that as vaccines become more available, mm-hmm. uh, as the days get longer we will get on top of this virus and that we must hang on to that hope 
Um, and whilst Christmas may be more difficult for all of us this year uh, than we would want or envisaged, uh, we, we have to hang on to that sense of hope in 2021. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, anything else that you would like to ask, Kat? Or... I think we had one last question uh, okay. from mm-hmm. It is from a uh, listener, a US listener, uh, and they asked uh, whether you think uh, Joe Biden's election as a nomination as president of the US will do much to change the UK's relationship with the US? Good question. I, I, you know, my, my view is that, you know, the fundamentals of the US-UK relationship have remained strong um, for for decades. Um, you know, we, we are the closest of partners uh, and I don't see that changing. Uh, obviously, when you change administrations, there are changes of tone and nuance uh, and there will be areas where we will agree more or, or, or disagree more. Um, so I don't think the fundamentals change. Uh, and in fact, I don't think the fundamentals have changed over uh, uh, over the past four years. Um, I think, you know, we will look forward to the new president being inaugurated and working with the new team. Um, I sense there will be more opportunities in multilateral fora because we will see a president with a very different approach to multilateralism. Mm. But I think the fundamentals of the bilateral relationship uh, will remain will remain strong. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, Judith, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come and sit down and talk it's to us. It's a pleasure. Thank it you for having so me. Um, and um, it's just wonderful to know that, you know, the UK interests are represented by somebody like you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Um, um, yeah. Um, was, is there anything else that you would like to say or, or, or add? Or... No, only that your listeners should be aware that you both have fabulous Christmas jumpers on uh, and a Christmas fascinator <laughs> and I have jumper envy. Um, so, as I say, I'm hoping I get a Christmas jumper on Christmas Day. Oh, I'm sure um, you so will no, <laughs> Thank you very much um, for having me and for, for cheering me up in the gloom. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Likewise.